hope you sense in a service like this that nothing is more important than knowing that you are right with God. The label we give it that started in the book of Acts is the word Christian. Nothing could be more important than knowing that you are a Christian. And sometimes we hear testimonies like we did this morning, and some people leave more confused than ever because they hear people tell stories about the seasons of life that they had where they thought they were Christians. And as you hear them explain it, you think, well, of course. Yeah, you went to church, you prayed a prayer, you walked an aisle, you committed your life to Christ, or whatever you said you did, and then you're questioning that and you're doubting that. What, why, why did people at this church do that? And I just think it's important for us to step back and to recognize that the experience of us coming to genuine repentance and faith in Christ, and those are Christ's words, right? Mark 1.15, he comes and uses those two verbs that that is the proper response to the gospel, to repent of our sins and put our trust in that verse, he says, in the good news. And the good news of the gospel is that he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus wants a transfer of our trust and a repentance, a different relationship with sin, and that changes everything about where we stand with God. And sometimes we think we're right with God simply because we have information or knowledge or we go to church or we don't do bad things that other people do. And so it's confusing, but nothing could be more important. And Satan, the Bible says, is out there trying to, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, blind the minds of people that are unbelieving. Paul says even Satan likes to disguise himself as an angel of light. And there are lots of people that think they're right with God, as Jesus said, who will come to him on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this, that, and the other? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. It's important that we understand where we stand with God. And while we use the same words over and over again, because they're the biblical words, repentance and faith, or turning from sin and trusting in Christ, it's important that we talk about what happens when someone does that. And we look at what the Bible says about the experience after we become a Christian, because that helps us identify the reality of what actually took place. So I think it would be helpful for us to run through some biblical experiences and realities. The realities that God has done in the life of a real Christian and they are the experience that we have when that takes place. So 10 things real quick. I just want to run through these. And the first one is that if you really have an encounter with the living God and you have genuine repentance and faith, you have a sense. This is an experiential sense of a reality, and that is a cleansed conscience. Your conscience is made clean. And you can do a lot of religious things and never have a clean conscience. You can do things that seem very godly and biblical, because your conscience is guilty. You act out of a guilty conscience to try and prop things up in your mind and in your life, and you think, well, these things make me feel like I'm okay, and yet all of it's motivated from a guilty conscience. The people that uh, the writer of Hebrews writes to, they had been tied up in all the Levitical ordinances of the Old Testament. They were going through all of that, and he compares the Old Testament sacrifices and all of the ceremonial law to the reality of Christ coming, and he makes this statement in Hebrews 9.14. He says, how much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit, this is huge, this is bigger than any sacrifice of an animal, offered himself without blemish to God, right? the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, how will he not right, purify our conscience? Right? The reality of a genuine encounter with the Christ who redeems us purifies our conscience from dead works, all the things we did before we became Christians, all that sense of guilt that we had. All the things that we did, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, satisfying the desires of our, of our body and our mind, all of that is now 
it's, it's cleansed, it's pure, it's made, made right. There's a sense of my conscience being relieved from all of that so that we can serve the living God. It's a service that's not out of guilt. It's a service out of a clean conscience. If you're a genuine Christian here today, you've had that experience. You know what it's like to have that experience of your conscience being cleansed. That everything you do in the Christian life doesn't come from a sense that I feel bad. I've got to do these right things so that I can feel like I'm really a Christian. But you sense that you are a Christian, and therefore you can serve the living God. There's another reality that I think all of us have had, and that's why the grammar of this particular point is put the way that it is. We have had Not that we still don't have some conviction of sin, and we do throughout the Christian life, but we have had a serious conviction of sin. And that word conviction has got some hard edges to it. It's a prickly word. It's a painful word. It's a word of feeling the weight of sin in a way we've never felt it before. And you heard the testimonies this morning, and some of them spoke to that. All of them have experienced it, and all of us that are here today as genuine Christians have experienced it. We have a sense of a kind of conviction that you can't compare to anything else. It's not just like, I just wish I were a better person, or I'd like to be someone I'm not. It's that crushing weight of what it means to really be fully convicted that we are sinners and that we're lost. And that happens when the Holy Spirit gets to to work on someone who is responding to and encountering the information of the gospel. Paul went to Thessalonica. He had a lot of good things to say about his fruitful ministry there, but One of the things he says is about how the power of God was at work when he shared the gospel there, and here's how he describes it. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 5. Because our gospel came to you, the good news of the gospel came to you, not only in word, not just that you heard it and you understood it and I articulated it clearly, but it also came in power and in the Holy Spirit. And here's what it does when it comes in power and the Holy Spirit. It comes with full conviction. I mean, that really is the miraculous work of God, that some person hears the gospel and they think, well, that's interesting and that's a neat offer. And another person hears the gospel and they have that sense of real crushing conviction that they sense that they are sinners, they're lost and they need a savior. And that's big. That's a big, 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 painful experience. It's a kind of grief that we have over our sin that non-Christians, they never have. They might be churchgoers. They might feel like they're Christians. They might think they want to be Christians but they haven't had that sense of the Holy Spirit bringing full conviction to their life over their sin. Well, when God comes and brings his saving grace to people's life, they have a sense in which that problem of sin has been made right. Not just in a conscience issue of like, yeah, my conscience is clean, but it's a sense of like who I was before God and the dread that I had regarding my sin. It's, it's, uh, It's been fixed. And that's a big statement. When you think about the way that God had spoken, for instance, to the Israelites in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah, and he says, well, let's just think this through now. You have such a problem, it's so bad, it's like a piece of white material that's been stained by blood, right, crimson. Like it's been made uh, like scarlet. He says here, come, let's reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall be They'll should be like wool, white like wool. They're going to be a completely different reality. And you have that sense, not just of a conscience that's clean, but a sense that whatever it was that stood between me and God, the barrier, the problem of sin, right, has been removed. The word in the New Testament is reconciliation. The sinful barrier between my life and the creator that made me has been removed. And that's not only relief, it's a sense that the problem has been fixed, fully fixed. I don't need to climb up steps on my knees. I don't need to pray the rosary. There's not some kind of set of good works. There's not an amount that I'm supposed to give to the church. It's like it has been solved. 
It's done. It's been completed. My sins have been removed. As Paul said to the Colossians, it's as though my sins were appended to the cross, nailed to the cross. Right? And as the old hymn says, and I, and I bear it no more. It's gone. And there's that sense of forgiveness and the problem that is just the most profound problem human beings have. Right? Falling short of God's glory has been fixed. Some people attach with Christianity. They go with a Christian community. They deal with a church, but they don't have that distinction of the problem being fully solved. How about this? Real Christians experience this. You'll submit your future to God's direction. Every real Christian has this experience. They know what it is to look at the future from the time they become Christians till the end of their lives, and they say, you know what? I'm willing to do what God says. I'm willing to to go where God takes me. I'm willing to do with my life whatever he wants. And that comes on the heels of a kind of, of sense that my sins have been forgiven, my conscience has been cleansed, my problem has been solved. And all of that's there in Isaiah chapter 6. Speaking of Isaiah, here is Isaiah transported up in this vision to see God in all of his glory. And as he encounters the greatness and holiness of God, as all the angels are flying around, he senses his own sin. And as it says in verse 5, woe to me, I'm ruined, right? I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. And he goes on to talk about the fact that he lives among a people of unclean lips. It's just like everyone here is falling short of the glory of God. But first and foremost, I know that I fall short of it. My eyes have seen the king, right? Capital K. That's very important, right? The king of kings, the one in charge, the ultimate king, right? The Lord of hosts, the one who's in charge of all the armies of heaven. There's this sense of smallness we have when we see the greatness of God and we recognize our sin. And then here's this image in the vision that Isaiah has as the angel dispatched to go to this altar and take with tongs a burning ember from the altar and bring it over, as it says in the middle of this passage, and he touched his mouth and he said, behold, this has touched your lips and your guilt is taken away. The thing that brought you guilt, the thing that brought you pain, right, all of that now has been relieved and forgiven. As I said, I know the problem has been solved. It's been atoned for. And as we look at the cross, as we think about what Christ did on the cross, we have that sense my sin has been paid for. It's been forgiven. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, it's interesting how this moves immediately to mission, immediately to the future of Isaiah's ministry. And he hears a voice from the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? What's interesting is you have like no discussion, no, well, what is it? What's the assignment? Let me take a look at it. You get immediately from Isaiah, here I am, send me. I don't know where it is. I don't know where you're going to take me, but I'm here. When someone recognizes that the Redeemer has redeemed them, that Christ has become their Savior, they immediately respond with, well, now you are my captain. You're my king. You're my Lord. And whatever you want to do with the rest of my life, I'm willing to do it. I may have interest to go over here down path A, but if you want me on path C, I'm willing to go here. I I know that your path for me is what I am compelled, as the New Testament book of Romans chapter 6 says, we are obliged to follow the Spirit. And we sense that, and we do it willingly. As it says in 1 John, his commandments are not a burden to us, not just the general principles of how I'm supposed to live as a Christian, but the path that he lays out for me, the calling that he has for me. If he doesn't want me living here, I'll live wherever you want me to live. If you don't want me doing this, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Everything is laid on the altar. As I quoted in the tank here just recently in in Luke 14, he says it's like surrendering to a king, but this is a benevolent king who now becomes my master and my king. They submit their future to the Lord. You know people that say, well, I'm a Christian, but still I'm, I'm in charge of kind of what I want to do. And if God asks me to do things, I don't want to do it. I won't do it. 
That's not real conversion. That's not a real heart that has been changed by the grace of the gospel. Speaking of that, it's something so interior that brings us an assurance within our own hearts. There's a lot of people that have testified this weekend in the baptismal tank to thinking they were a Christian at one point, and when they doubted it as a non-Christian, they sought to prop up that, that assertion. That, yes, I am saved. I am right. I'm good with God. By putting more things in their brain, right, getting more information, looking at people and saying, don't you think I'm good with God? They want all this exterior affirmation. The Bible says that when you become a real Christian, there's an assurance that grows from the inside of our lives. Why? Because the Bible promised that the new covenant reality would be the Spirit of God dwelling within us. He's not just going to be pressing on the outside in conviction or even bringing some comfort from the outside, but he's going to dwell within us. Look at how it's put in Romans chapter 8. You've received the Spirit of adoption. Think about that. Talk about solving the problem. Talk about being transferred from one category to the other, from being dead in our transgressions and sins to being alive in Christ. He's changed our status, and the Spirit of God now has come within us, and he says, you're mine. The Spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, and we respond to that presence of the Spirit with saying, yes, I I am your son because you are my father. And of course, employed here, if you've been in the church, you know that word Abba, is an Aramaic term. Aramaic was the uh, linguistic uh, uh, expression of the Hebrews in the first century. It was the household language, right? They would go to the marketplace and they would speak in Koine Greek, the Hellenization of the world 300 years before that. They would speak in Greek in the marketplace, in the synagogue, in classical Hebrew, reading the scrolls. But in the household, they would speak Aramaic. And the Aramaic word for father or dad was Abba. And so that brings us down into a kind of inside the walls of my life And in my life with the Spirit of God who's testifying, yes, I've now come, I've solved your problem, your conscience is clean, the response of the heart of a person is, yes, I'm right with God. And that is inexplicable to someone who hasn't experienced it because they think, well, how do you know you're a Christian? Well, look at the next line in this passage. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And before you say, well, that's the one I identify with, I don't identify with the others, you understand you could take this one point here, the fifth point, and you could say, well, I kind of feel like inside I'm a Christian. And sometimes we talk ourselves into that, and it's not the Spirit of God, right? It's our own brains telling us that. And remember what God said, my thoughts are not your thoughts, right? We need all of this to be anchored in everything else that we've just said that we have a conscience that needs cleansing, that we have a problem that we can't solve, that God has solved the problem through the redemption of Christ, that our lives are laid before him and our future is submitted to to his lordship. With all of that, with those elements all composite and brought together, then of course, yeah, the identification of the assurance of my life in the interior of my heart is the spirit of God saying, you're my son. And we say, Abba, Father, we say, "You're, you're right, we are. And my spirit and God's spirit on the same page. And I have that interior sense of assurance that I am a Christian. All of these come together as the experience, the composite experience of genuine Christians. Number six, from that point on of becoming a real Christian, you see an undeniable, it's observable, people on the outside can see it, an an undeniable redirection of your life. And I'm not talking about you quitting your job and becoming a missionary or a pastor or a Bible translator or going to Bible school, it may not even be that. It may be you're right in the same job, in the same position, and while you weren't some, uh, you know, drug pusher or, you know, some some gang member or whatever, you you don't see some external 
clear categorical change, but people see an undeniable redirection of your life. I mean, there's something different about how you live. There's a sense in which even the small sins, the culturally acceptable sins, they start to go away. The way you talk, the way you think, the way you, you, you laugh, the way you joke, everything starts to change. And that is, is something that's undeniable. Because the compromise of the enemy in your life, what the devil would love to get you doing, right, is, is not, it's not like categorical leap into some other kind of crazy life where you claim that you're some witch or you're casting spells on people, but it's that incremental compromise. And the devil's all about that. And in the book of 1 John, chapter 3, it couldn't say it any clearer than this. Listen to these words. Whoever makes a practice of sinning as subtly and, and, and compromised as that may be in an incremental sense is of the devil, right? That's that you're in the category and the belonging of someone who is in opposition to God. Why? Because the devil's been sinning from the beginning and even subtly and carefully leading people like Adam and Eve off the path in very subtle ways, right? But the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That was the point, to not only destroy the penalty of our sins, which is canceling sin out by having Christ suffer hell on the cross for us, but in dealing with the actual activity of sin and on the compromise of sin. Look at the next line. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him. That's an interesting way to put it. And again, we're back to the interior work of God's spirit within our hearts, within our lives, the presence of the Spirit in our lives. We can't go on sinning because we've been born of God. Something's different within us. As Ezekiel 36 says, there's a change in the actual Spirit that I have, not just the capital S Spirit of God dwelling within me, but my Spirit has changed. He says, I will put a new Spirit in you. I will take your heart of stone out. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will move you to keep my commandments. There's just something different, and there's a redirection when the Spirit of God starts to redirect your life. I'm not saying there's not work. I'm not saying there's not volitional decisions made along the way, but I am saying no one's going to look at your life and say, well, there's been no change. I don't care if you're a good church kid that's always kept yourself out of trouble. When you become a Christian, something's different about the direction of life. It's an undeniable redirection of your life because it's a redirection from the inside of your life, not just conformity on the outside of your life. Number seven, when you do sin, and all of us as Christians sin, right? the Bible's very clear on that, James chapter 1, verse 3, or James chapter 3, rather, verse 1, we're all going to stumble as Christians. But when we do, we hate it more than we ever have before. As a matter of fact, the things that you grieve 20 years into your Christian life, in your, in your life, that you've, that when you've sinned and transgressed God's, God's precepts and, and commandments, right, you will grieve in a way that if you look back a year before you became a Christian, you think, I can't even believe that I would ever fuss about that. Right? You'll, you'll hate sin in a way you never have before. Real Christians do because God's Holy Spirit dwells within us. Look at how it's put here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. It's a grief that we have over sin, and it's not an ungodly or worldly grief. It's a godly grief that produces repentance. We see the pain over our sin, and we say, I'm going to stop. I have to, I have to move away from that. I can't continue in that. And we grieve over it when we stumble in sin. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. There are some people that say they're Christians that never had that earnestness about their sin. Right? They've never grieved with a kind of earnestness over their sin. But it happens for us all the time as Christians. Not only that, it's an eagerness to clear ourselves. It's an indignation, a just anger over our sin. 
right? What fear? We don't want to continue it. We're afraid. We really fear as a son fears displeasing his father who he knows, as it says in Hebrews 12, will discipline us for our own good. We don't want that. What longing? We want to do right. What zeal? What, what, what passion to do the right thing? What punishment even? What kind of self-discipline is Paul described in saying, I don't want to do that anymore? We make no provision for the flesh. We keep fighting sin. We fight sin in a way we never did before because we hate it, not just getting caught. We hate the presence of it in our lives. Number eight, you'll feel alienated from the culture. Not a person up here that has testified to becoming a Christian that doesn't feel an increasing hostility between themselves and the world that we live in. And and, and that would have been true in 1950s America, and it's true today. It may seem like the headlines are more radical, but real Christians have never fit in with the world, not even in the first century. Jesus put it this way in John chapter 15. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But as it is, right, you're not of the world. I've chose you out of the world, right? Therefore, the world hates you. And in the context, he says, the world hated me. Hates me, it'll hate you. And that animosity, that tension, that frustration between everything the world is designed to, to prop up in people's lives. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. We heard it testified to in the baptismal tanks today. The world's constantly fueling that and it's never going to fit with your new desire to love and serve God. So there's increased hostility, increased alienation. You feel out of place in the world. And every real Christian does. Let me rush to number nine. You won't mind so much that the world hates you. There comes a place where you start to recognize, and we've heard it throughout the weekend in people's testimonies, like it it really doesn't matter anymore. I I, I can lose a relationship over this. I might lose a job over this. I might be out of step with the world. It might be the forms of entertainment that the world ingests. I can't ingest anymore, but it it really doesn't matter because what matters most is what God thinks. And to me, when I've enthroned the King of Kings in my life as my Redeemer and my Lord, it doesn't matter what the world really thinks. I'm just getting used to the fact that they're never going to applaud my obedience to Christ. You won't mind so much that you're hated. And I love the way Paul puts it with a real definitive statement in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. He says, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then this great statement about him saying, I'm going to be all about it. He said the same thing to the Corinthians. I want to know nothing among you, but Christ and him crucified. I care about that transaction of the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And that's what I'm all about. I care about God. He adds this, comma, by which, right, because of the cross of Christ, because all that it means to me, because what it means about the world and the sin of this world, he says, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's just such a crazy statement, right? It's like, it doesn't really matter that I don't fit in because I'm not about that. I'm about the cross. I'm about what Christ has done. I'm about the redemption that I find in my my heart, the new life that I have. That's what matters. That's why church becomes so precious to real Christians because it's a place where the cross is celebrated, where Christians are all on the same page following Christ and looking to his word to understand what it is to have it be a light to our path, a lamp for our feet. I'll add one more verse on this one. Paul says a very small thing. Not that it doesn't hurt. Not that you know people casting aspersions or criticizing us. We, we understand we don't like the, the derision. We don't like the insults. We don't like the slander. We, no, we don't like it. But it's a very small thing that we'd be judged by people looking at our Christian life and criticizing it. right? Because ultimately what matters is hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. It is the Lord who judges me. And in the end, I know that matters far, far, far more than the world's opinion of me. 
And real Christians feel that way. We sense that. We sense an increased alienation and hostility with the world, but we also have a great sense of, it doesn't matter that much. Does it hurt? Hurts. Does it sting? It stings. But it doesn't ultimately matter. And that's where real Christians are. And there are, they are in that mindset, and they stay in that mindset, because lastly, real Christians never turn on Christ, and they never turn on his church. They never bail out. I mean, the Bible's so clear on this one point. It's what we do together as Christians. We spur one another on to more love, love for God, love for each other, and good deeds. We're constantly telling each other, this is the word of God. It's a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. We're going to do what it says, and we're always encouraging people to watch out for the hazards, the pitfalls of sin, the luring of the enemy, the tempter pulling us off the path. That's why church is a great thing for us. As the writer of Hebrews says to his crowd, we exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, which of course is what we do, and real Christians continue to do that. They don't forsake assembling together. They don't forsake the teaching of the word. They don't forsake that spurring on to love and good deeds. And he says, for we have come to share in Christ. That's a completed grammatical sentence right there. We've come to share in Christ, that phrase says. It's done. We are real Christians, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Because that's what real Christians do. If they come to share in Christ, they heed the words, they heed the teaching, they recognize that the interior life that they have that has been given to them by the Spirit and the residence of the Spirit in their life, it comports with the teaching they get from a good Bible teaching assembly, and they continue to follow faithfully after Christ all the way until they meet Him face to face. They never turn on Christ in His church. They never become apostate. Are there apostates? Well, sure there are. There are people that, according to 1 John 2, they go out from us, they turn on the Christ, and they turn on the church, because they were not really of us. If they would have been of us, really redeemed people, the spirit of God, the spirit of adoption dwelling within them, they would have remained with us. And that carrying on, that continuing on, that persevering of real Christians is a sign, is a genuine sign of real Christianity. And all the people that have come to testify of their faith in Christ this week, who have this weekend a genuine conversion experience that they've all attested to, These are all true of them. And when you hear them tell stories about a time in their life where they thought they were Christians and you're objecting, you're thinking, well, if you thought you were, then you were. If you affirm the right things, you were. But see, the reality is real repentance and faith brings these kinds of realities and experiences to our life. And when they're there, then we go, well, that's radically different than what I had going on before. So we care about this very much. When we give these services to baptisms, and the expression and testimony of their experience in Christ, we don't want to leave that opportunity without saying to you, hey, are you sure you've had a genuine conversion experience? You know what it is to genuinely repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ? Do you see the evidence of that in your life? If not, there's no aisle to walk, there's no card to fill out, there's no pine cone to throw in the fire, there's no money to give. It's you doing business with God right now in your seat, in your mind, saying, I know that what he just explained is not the reality of my life. And if you're skeptical of what I've said, man, go into the Word, look it up, see what the Bible says. But if you know that what I've said is true, and it's not real for you, we heard great testimonies in this service, right, saying it's time for you to do it right now. Say yes. There's no reason you should not put your trust in Christ and repent of your sin. And have that experience of a clear conscience, of the problem being solved, of an assurance from the inside of your life of your future being laid before the Lord. 
of you having all the things that we just described that are they're, they're part and parcel. They're the synchronon of genuine Christianity. And I hope that today for some of you, it might be that day. If you didn't listen to what I said, you hope you listen to what they said because they said it well. This is what Christianity is all about. And we want that for everyone, not only in this building, but in all of South Orange County. And that's why we're here as a church to be a lampstand, to bring that light and that message to our generation. So let me pray for you. God, for some here in this church that are struggling with all of this, I pray you bring clarity to them. And even as we've heard throughout the weekend, and I can't help but think of some that heard the message of the gospel and it befuddled them. It, 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 it was hard for them to figure out and they gave themselves to the study of your word. I'm so thankful for those stories. The word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. You've spoken to us in that book, and I pray that we give ourselves to it, not just cherry-picking our five or six favorite verses, but really digging into what it says. Understand the New Testament truths of the invasion of your spirit into our lives, changing us. And for those here, where more information is not the problem, it's just them laying down their lives before you right now by saying they need to trust you fully, not their own resume, not their own efforts, but saying they know they're sinners, they see and feel that conviction of sin. I pray that today would be the day for them, that even now, without words to parrot, without cards to fill out, that they would just give their hearts to you with a penitent faith. And I pray that you would embrace them and give them that sense of a cleansed conscience. Do it today that we might even hear their stories publicly articulated on this platform a few months from now as they sign up to declare and stand with Christ that they're Christians. God, we want that. We want that for everyone we know. We, we anguish in our heart for those that reject the gospel and we pray that we'd be effective as a church in bringing it with clarity to our community. In Jesus' name, amen.